Uh, there are certain moments in your life that will always stick with you. Certain moments. Uh, that, for example, the day you graduate from high school will no doubt, for most of you, be a day that will, you will remember for the rest of your life. Because, well, you're just done with school and you're like, who cares? I'm done. I want to be out. So there are certain moments like that. But maybe, maybe there's that time that you took that unforgettable trip to Hawaii or something like that. Or maybe there's that instant when you scored the game-winning goal or something like that. Or perhaps there's that moment even when uh, you had to attend your grandfather's funeral or something like that. There are certain moments that you just never forget. And they're etched in your mind till the day you die. That's the way they are. I had such a moment like that back in high school I was a sophomore itching to become an upperclassman, and uh, I was ready to be older and to be more mature than most of my high school compatriots, okay? But one spring Sunday morning, I witnessed something I would never forget. Uh, it wasn't anything disastrous. Uh, it wasn't really anything exciting or thrilling necessarily. In fact, it wasn't any really anything intriguing or captivating. In, in fact, nothing out of the ordinary actually happened. But really, it was, a, it, was a, it was a day that I wouldn't forget. By all accounts, though, it really was just another Sunday. But this day became seared into my mind, uh, and to this very day, and I've never forgotten it. I was sitting among 300 high school students in a cold, dark, windowless room, because that's where we would meet for our youth services at church. And the worship team came up to lead us in song, just kind of like Sam and Josh did right now. And, and they led us for a couple, through a couple songs. But then the lead singer paused between songs to tell us something. And this is what he said. Or, well, actually, um, what he basically said was he and his worship team were going to be leaving the ministry in high school to go to a different ministry in, in church. And this didn't really surprise me at all. At my church, I was kind of used to watching people do this, move from ministry to ministry. So that didn't surprise me, and that's not what really stuck out to me. Um, and I really didn't know anyone on the leadership team or on the uh, worship team, and so it really didn't grieve me. That's not what really sticks with me. It was what the worship leader said as his final words to us. That's what stuck with me. The last thing he wanted us to know, and that's what I remember the most, his final words because it was the most important thing he could think of to share with us at that time. If you have five minutes to, to live, uh, you wanna make the most of those five minutes and say the most important things on your mind in those five minutes, I would imagine. Uh, you wanna share the most important things on your heart. Well, this worship leader did exactly that, and I've never forgotten it. And before I make you wait too long to tell you exactly what he said, let me share with you exactly what he said. He said, if there's one thing I can share with you before we go, it's this. Just two words. Two words. No Christ. No Christ. Those were his two words. Make sure you know Christ. Make sure you have a personal relationship with him. Make sure you seek him with all of your heart, that you're devoted to him, and that you love him. I've never forgotten that. That's stuck with me to this day because it was this man's last words to his students. 
And because I wholeheartedly believe in my heart, these are the most important words that I can share with anyone one last time. Now, I realize that tonight um, I'm not leaving you and you're not leaving me necessarily. I hope not. But as we wrap up our series in Unstained, I can think of no thing better than to leave you with the most important thing, to leave you with no Christ. That's the most pressing thing. Because knowing Christ is the ultimate tool that equips you to live unstained for the rest of your life. And that's kind of the title of what I'm calling, calling the sermon here. This is unstained for the rest of your life. Everything we've talked about so far is important. It's all vital. You know, we've talked about how do you live unstained in relationship to your family? How do you live unstained uh, in community with your church? How do you live unstained in your social media universe? How do you live unstained in your entertainment, whether it be movies or music or TV or games? Uh, How do you live unstained in sports and competition? How do you live unstained in your personal walk with God, your Bible reading, your prayer life, uh, your worship to him? All these subjects were so important. And so we talked about them. But there's nothing more vital than I can share with you than what I'm about to share with you tonight. No Christ. No Christ. There's a sense of urgency with this, unlike all the other topics we've discussed. Yes, it's important to be unstained in your family relationships, to be thoughtful, to be critical about social media, um, entertainment, um, to be devoted to reading scripture and prayer. But that all pales in comparison to the overarching goal of knowing Christ. Because on the final day, when you stand before God, God's not going to ask you, you know, how did you, you know, handle, you know, you know, using your iPhone? Or how did you... You know, how many times did you read your Bible a day? How often? How many times did you pray a day? Or, you know, were, were your relationships with your family always right? We're all sinners. We all sin. We're, we're all going to be able to, all we're going to be able to say before God is, I'm a sinner. And, and, and why should you let me into your heaven? But what's the one thing, the one thing that changes all of us? Do you know Christ? This is the most urgent and important topic we can talk about. Now, I hope you know that to know Christ isn't just knowing facts about Christ. It's more than that. To know Christ isn't just being able to tell, you know, tell me that Jesus died on the cross for his sins. It's true, he did. To know Christ isn't just being able to rattle off passages that talk about the deity of Christ. You know, like, you know, I don't know, you know, John 1, 1 talks about that, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that talks about how Jesus is God. He was there before the beginning of time. And he is the very expression of who God is because he is God. But that's not not really what know Christ means. To know Christ isn't just being able to check off all the theological boxes um, and, and be able to say that I know everything what the Bible says. It's more than that. It includes all that, but it's more than that. You better know those things, but to know Christ is actually to go much deeper. It's to invest in a rich relationship with God based on your rich based on your rich understanding of who he is. That's what it is. To know Christ is to love him above all else. To know Christ is to cherish him more than anybody else. To know Christ is to be fixated on him 
more than anything else. I want you to walk away from our series knowing Christ, knowing Christ, so that you have the spiritual stamina to live unstained for the rest of your life. Now, it's one thing for me to say this is important, but it's way better if I can show it to you. So if you grab, if you have your Bibles with you, let's open them to the book of Philippians, book of Philippians. And I want to look at specifically Philippians chapter three. But before we go there, turn to Philippians chapter one, because we're going to spend, um, I want to spend some time setting the stage for you um, before we get into chapter three. Okay. And I just want to look at one verse because I think there's one verse that can really summarize what's going on in the book of Philippians up to this point before we get to chapter three. Um, the book of Philippians is the perfect place to go to finish out our unstained series here because Philippians is actually all about how do you live in the world and not be of it? How do you live unstained? Philippians is kind of about that. Uh, how do you make an impact for Christ in this world uh, rather than being sucked into it? That's what Philippians is all about. And Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 gives us the blueprint for success here, okay? Philippians 1.27. This is the main point of the entire book in this one statement, okay? Look what it says in verse 27. It says, only, only, and there's going to be different ways you're, you, you might, might, this might be translated for you, but only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or maybe you might say only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the main point here. That's the main point of Philippians. That's bottom line, how to live in the world and not be of it. But for this to make sense, we need to clarify something about this verse, okay? Do you see those words where it says, let your manner of life be? You guys see those words there? In the ESV, who has an ESV? Raise your hand. ESV. Who has an NESB in front of them? Raise your hand. Which a new new American standard? Anyone have that? No? Okay. Mostly NASB or ESV. Sorry. Okay. It says, probably in your Bible, it says, let your manner of life be. Those words there, here's here, here's something, a little tidbit, okay? Um, this, this letter was written 2,000 years ago. And it wasn't written in English because English wasn't around back then, okay? This was written in a language called Greek, okay? This was written in the Greek language. In the Greek language, all those words, let your manner of life be, is just one word in Greek. It's one big word. It's like, well, how does that happen? Like, how, how, do, how can you actually make that one big word? I don't know, but you just can, okay? That's just the way it is. This is one big word. And that word is not really conveyed very well by your translation. I'm sorry, but the way your translation translated this, it doesn't give you the right kind of idea here, okay? And let me kind of flesh this out of what this word actually means, okay? Um, I'm actually not sure why the ESV uh, kind of put it this way, but they make it kind of vague. They make it kind of just let your life, you know, kind of let the man of your life be this way. Well, it's, it's, it's more specific than that. There's more going on than just let your life be a certain way, okay? You know, if you make it so vague, What's it talking about? Is it talking about your daily routine? Is it talking about your school life? You know, is it talking about, you know, like 
when you sharpen your pencil at school, you know, let, let that be for the gospel or something like that. Like, well, what's it talking about here? Here's what it's talking about. Um, what this is talking about is the fact that this word actually means citizen. Citizen. It's like, where'd that come from? Let your manner of life be to citizen? Like, how, do, how does that work? But that's what this word means. It means citizen. How many of you guys went to Regen, the Regen High School camp? A lot of you did, right? What was the theme of Regen? Citizenship. Citizens, right? Citizens. Um, that was the theme of Regen. It's that very word, citizens. We even had like t-shirts and it's got like, you know, different buildings on it and stuff like that, right? Skyscrapers or whatever. Um, citizen should bring them to your mind the idea of citizenship, your allegiance, your, your national identity, um, you know, where you're born, that kind of thing. You guys are an American citizen, I think. Is anyone not an American citizen? Okay, good. All right. Maybe, maybe you're something else. I don't know. Like maybe you're not like born here or something. So could be. Um, but this isn't, this is the word citizen, but it's not the noun citizen. It's not a noun. It's a verb. So it's a verb citizen. Um, but how do you turn a noun citizen into a verb citizen? Like, I'm going to citizen you. That doesn't make any sense, okay? Like, how does that work? Well, I think that's why the English translation has a hard time translating this, because it doesn't know what to do with a verb citizen, because we don't have it in English. So let me give you the best way I know how to describe what this means, okay? This is what this means. Live out your citizenship. Live out your citizenship. In other words, conduct yourself as an upstanding citizen. Now, if I were to ask you, what does it mean to conduct yourself as an upstanding citizen? What would you say that means? Tell me, tell me what that means. If you... Lit, what does it mean to conduct yourself as an upstanding citizen? Follow the law in the morning. Yeah, follow the law. Pay your taxes. Do what a citizen's supposed to do, right? Be a good citizen, you know? I don't know, right? And that's, a, that's actually exactly what Paul has in mind here. Be an upstanding citizen. But he doesn't just leave it there. What does he say? Live out your citizen citizenship. Be an upstanding citizen worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he takes it a step higher. He makes it a higher standard. Make it worthy of the gospel. In other words, let the world know by the way that you live your life as a citizen that the gospel is worth it, that the gospel is worth it. This is talking about how you interact with non-Christians, how you interact with unbelievers, how you interact with the world. How you interact with your unsaved friends. That's what it's talking about. That's the focus Paul has with this word citizen. And that's what unstained has been about all this time, hasn't it? It's been about living unstained in the midst of a world that's trying to suck you into something else. Well, Paul's like, live in a way that you actually make the gospel look like it's worth it. It's worth it. And so that's the point here. So let's see how Paul fleshes this out. Turn over to Philippians 3. Turn over to chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 here. And we're not going to take a long time on this. We're going to, we're going to move through this pretty quickly. But I want to explore this. And I don't really have an outline for you for tonight. 
Uh, this is kind of my heart to yours. This is a this is a, a subject that's very personal to me. So I don't really have like a nice little outline for you to write down. Just take notes um, of what you think is going to be helpful here. And let me just kind of simply walk through this chapter kind of verse by verse here and just kind of explain this to you, okay? Look at verse 1, okay? Let's, let's see what this says. Verse 1, he says, uh, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This is the final turn of the letter. This is the last thing Paul is giving to, uh, to the church that he's writing to. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. No, I don't think that's too difficult to grasp, is it? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means get excited about Christ. Be thrilled about him. Find your happiness in the Lord. He's your ultimate joy. That's what this means. Very simple. But we run into a problem right away, okay? You see, Paul just doesn't get our culture, right? I mean, there's way more exciting things in this world than Christ, aren't there? There's way more exciting things. There's all kinds of entertainment out there. There's all kinds of sports and movies and sitcoms and parties and activities and beaches and sunshine and smiles and lollipops. I mean, right? There's all kinds of exciting things. Paul, what are you talking about rejoicing the Lord? What are you talking about get excited about Christ? Well, Paul knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. He says, get excited about Christ. And he shows you in the following verses. Look at verse 2. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the dogs. What does that mean? Watch, watch out for Fluffy? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I never thought Fluffy would be so mean and, and, and cruel. But he says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers, the evil workers. He says, but back in those days, dogs were like, um, they, were, they were like scavengers. They were like rats in our day. No one really likes rats that much, unless it's like Mickey Mouse, but... He's a, he's a mouse, so that doesn't really count, okay? But if you really saw a rat, it'd probably make you scream. I, I actually had a rat jump, jump at me once, and I think I screamed like a girl. It was pretty bad, so, okay? Um, dogs were the rats of, uh, of, of the ancient cultures back then. They were scavengers. People hated them because they, they kind of preyed on the weak and the helpless, and, and they were kind of like, you know, like if someone died, what they would do is they would go over to the person who died and like and like lick up all the blood and stuff like that. It was gross. So, um, so they didn't like them. They they hated dogs. All right, but how do you tell? Um, so Paul says, don't don't go near these 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 ravenous dogs. But how do you tell who's a ravenous dog or not? Well, here's how you tell. Look at verse three. He says, for we are the true circumcision. Those who Worship in the Spirit of God, those who boast in, the, in, in Christ Jesus, those who don't put confidence in the flesh. That's how you know those who are ravenous dogs. It's those who don't worship the Spirit of God, worship in the Spirit of God, those who don't boast in Christ Jesus, and those who do put confidence in the flesh. Those are the ones you need to stay, stay away from. In other words, anyone who pulls you away from your joy in Christ He's a dog who's going after you when you're most vulnerable. Don't go after them. Watch out for them. Anyone who tells you to put your joy in yourself, in your, in your accomplishments, to trust in your own ability, he's deceiving you. Don't put confidence in your flesh. Put confidence in who? 
in Christ. In Christ. Make your joy in Christ. He is who you're all about now. And you might be thinking to yourself, but Paul, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not crazy and, you know, you know, I'm not, you know, ridiculous and insane and, and completely like an evildoer and stuff like that. I don't do, I don't murder people and all that. So he says, maybe I can bring something to, to the table here. Paul says, no, you can't. You can't bring anything. Look at verse four. He says, although I, for one, could have confidence even in my flesh, if anyone else thinks he can put confidence in his flesh, I weigh more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee according to the law, a persecutor of the church with a great drive or great zeal, blameless according uh, to, to a righteousness that's found in the law. Paul says here, if there's anyone who could say he brings something to the table, it's me. Because Paul was like, in those days, considered one of the most religious people of his day. He says if anyone was considered righteous or just or perfect or an upstanding citizen, it was Paul. It was Paul. He was the perfect citizen. He was the perfect citizen. But Paul says, look at verse 7. This is what he says here. And this is a very familiar, very familiar verse. Paul says, but whatever was gained to me, these things I counted as loss because of Christ. But what's more, I even count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing who? Christ Jesus my Lord, because of whom I've suffered the loss of all these things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says, if anyone could say that I, could, I, that I can make an argument that I'm a pretty good person and I can contribute something, it's I. But I'm nothing. I'm nothing without Christ. How much more are you nothing? If I could say that I could bring something to the table and, I'm, and actually I can't, then neither can you. He says that's, we all, in, we're all in this together. There's nothing we can bring before God to say we're great or we're worth it. We're nothing. We're absolutely nothing. So he says, don't, don't let it make you believe you're something special and that there are greater joys out there than Christ. No. You know who's special? Christ is special. And that's where you find your identity. And that's where you find your joy. No Christ. No Christ. Paul says he counts everything all these things that he once found identity in, he says he counts them as loss. Um, now, what does it mean that he, he counted them as loss? Is that like, you know, losing a game, like a soccer game, or like losing a match out here or something like that? Is that like losing a loved one? What's he talking about? To lose something here means to lose possession of it. You once had it in possession, now you've lost it. Um, you know, you kind of know this. What happens when you, um, or actually... Um, you're kind of aware of this. The Old Testament actually, when it talks about this idea, it almost always refers to it as a fine, as a fine. And you're aware of this. What happens when you don't return a Redbox DVD on time? You get fined. That's right. I think it's like a dollar a day or something like that. Is that right? Dollar a day or something like that. That adds up over time, doesn't it? You get, you, it costs you something. It costs you something. You start losing something. 
Well, Paul says, knowing Christ cost me. It cost me dearly. And he says this, I count all things, all things to be lost. I count all things to no longer be in my possession. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul lost everything. Now, he lost some things. He lost some things. I mean, he was, he was pretty, yeah, he suffered a lot. And he lost a lot of things. But he didn't lose everything. What is he saying here? He's saying, Paul thought about everything he had as if it wasn't his own. He didn't consider everything his own. Whatever he had, he said, this isn't even mine. I don't even think like it's mine. He did that so that he could cling to the one thing that he knew he could have forever, and that's Christ. That's Christ. Paul says, I may have money, but I don't see it as mine. I may have food, but it's not mine. I may have all kinds of possessions, but I don't treat it like it's mine. Because as soon as I begin to think that I own something or I'm entitled to something, I lose the one thing that matters most. I lose Christ. It comes at a price. Having the world comes at a price. It means you don't have Christ. But having Christ means it comes at a price too. It means you don't really have the world either. You know, I've talked to you about this verse all the time. But Matthew 6 talks about how no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and something else. It doesn't work that way. You have to choose one or the other. So Paul, and Paul is so passionate about this. And he says, I can't have that. I can't have the world and not have Christ. I won't have that. My joy is in the Lord. And Paul is so passionate about it, he actually calls everything that he once owned rubbish. Rubbish. What's rubbish? You know, filth. Yeah, it's trash. That's right. There are two things this actually could be, and neither of them you want to keep around. Okay? It could be trash. One could be trash. Now, we're okay with trash today because we have trash bins that lock in the smell and we can't see the trash. But how many of you guys have ever been to a landfill before? Anyone been to a landfill? Handful of you guys? Tell me, does it smell good? It smells trashy. It's very bad, okay? Don't go to a landfill unless you have a death wish. Um, it smells awful and it looks awful. It's so depressing. Um, now, think about this. Think about this, okay? If someone were to ask you, if someone were to ask you, hey, what do you got in your possession right now? You would never say to someone, oh, I've got trash. I've got trash. Isn't that great? You would never say that. Trash is something by nature that you get rid of. That's the whole point of trash. It's something you're planning on removing. That's its very nature. No one ever boasts in owning trash, okay? No, no one who's sane. Um, that's, but that's, it could be talking about trash, okay? But the second thing it could be talking about is not, tr not trash. It could actually be referring to dung. Dung. That's right. The, like diaper stuff, right? Um, pretty gross stuff. Now, no one would ever pride themselves in owning dung, okay? You get rid of that mess because you don't want it, okay? No one ever says, oh, yeah, I have dung and it's great, you know? No one says that. That's gross. You get rid of it. That's why it's called refuse because you refuse it and you want to get rid of it, okay? Paul says, 
I treat everything like it's trash or dung. It's abhorrent. It may not smell like trash at the moment. It may not seem like dung, dung at the time, but that's what it is. And that's how I treat it. It's be always something I'm looking to get rid of because it steals my joy from Christ. That's what it does. The nastiest thing I've ever smelled in my life is actually a fruit. It's actually a fruit. It's not trash. This fruit is called durian. Durian, okay? And durian is a fruit that's native to Asia that smells quite dreadful. Um, when I smelled it, I was 50 feet away from it, outdoors, and I still wanted to hurl. 50 feet outdoors. That's like me standing like, uh, like near close to the back of the Collins yard outside, and then there's durian at the front of the yard. I can smell it, and it still makes me want to hurl. It actually, some people, some people say it tastes good. I don't know. I've never tasted it. But, but people, but we actually had an iron gut competition when I was around it, and no one was able, able to be, be able to keep it in, I think. It was pretty gross. Um, it's pretty gross. Now, in fact, it's so smelly that you're forbidden to carry durian around with you in public places like subways and elevators because it'll make you, it'll make everyone want to kill you pretty much. So, um, now, here's the thing. Imagine I bake a warm apple pie in the Collins oven right now, okay? And it makes the whole house smell so good, all right? And you're enjoying that nice smell, and you're anticipating the joy of digging into the most savory goodness of every bite. And then I run out to the store, and I buy some durian fruit, <laughs> and I bring it into the house, and I cut it open so that I can let... All the nasty odors fill the house, and I even throw some in the apple pie just to mix things up a little bit. Which smell will you notice more? The durian or the apple pie? No, which one will you smell? You'd want to smell that pie, but which one would you smell? The durian. You would, you, no, no, no. You would, sm trust me you would smell the durian. Here's why. Really bad smells always overpower really good ones. They always do. Don't let your joy, sorry, don't let the joy of the world overpower your joy in Christ. Don't let the joy of the world overpower your joy in Christ. It may smell pleasant at the time, but it's toxic. It's toxic because it robs you of Christ himself. You must think of it like the trash that it is. So, you want, to, you want an unstained life that'll last? No Christ. No Christ. There are some moments in life that you'll never forget. One, one of those moments for me was that fateful Sunday morning 12 years ago. But moments like that aren't just memories. They're not just memories. Moments like that are also game changers. They change who you are. They alter your course. They reset your priorities. They don't leave you the same person you were two minutes before it happened. You just, you're not the same person anymore. Four years later from that time, my sophomore year in college now, 
I joined the leadership team of the junior high ministry at my church. And I wasn't the same person I was four years before. My worship leader's ambition had become my ambition. I wanted 12-year-olds to know Christ. I wanted 12-year-olds to know Christ. So that at the end of every at the end of every year, in the month of May, we would have some kind of a party to send off our eighth grade students. And at this party, what I would do is I would share with them this, ex- this exact same story about how my worship leader in high school left me two little words that stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I would proceed to share with them that exact same charge. You want to live unstained for the rest of your life. My challenge, my charge to you is this. Know Christ. Know Christ. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would echo the words of the Apostle Paul and we would be so excited about Christ. We rejoice in the Lord so much that we would count everything in this world as rubbish, as trash, even as dung. Things that we want to get rid of because they distract us and prevent us from clinging to the one thing that we absolutely treasure and will own for all eternity, and that is Christ himself. Father, if there's any student in this room who doesn't know you, who doesn't cling to you, who doesn't love you, please bring conviction in their hearts. Help them to see that knowing Christ is the most satisfying and rewarding thing that we can do. We were made to worship, to love, and to value and cherish you. May that be the by our heart's desire. May that change our entire life's trajectory and channel all of our efforts to exalting you and knowing you in a very personal and intimate way. Father, bless our time now as we go into a time of small groups. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.